What's up everybody? It's Dan, Binder Boneyard, coming at you from the office. It is uh, end of July, it's hotter than hell everywhere, uh, which is good because it's supposed to be hot in July. Uh, I'm not sure why everyone's all alarmed about it being hot, but uh, anyway, it's July. So hopefully you guys are enjoying the summer, getting your projects done, making some forward movement on things getting stuff wrapped up or ready, um, enjoying the summer anyways. I know a lot of you Midwestern folks, um, you know, come October, uh, your stuff goes back in the barn, goes back in the garage, and it doesn't come out again until May. So uh, hopefully you're enjoying your summer, and um, yeah. Appreciate all of the donations, all the subscribers. Uh, I've noticed the Patreon uh, subscribers keep going down, but uh, the listeners keep going up, so <laughs> whatever, uh, I'm still going to keep doing these things, um, so I have picked up more Instagram subscribers, which is is nice, um, appreciate you guys over there, if that's easier, uh, if you want to support the podcast and uh, but don't want to do the whole Patreon thing, um, Instagram. You can subscribe over at Instagram. It's like three bucks a month, um, and you get exclusive content. Uh, you know, Dan Binder Boneyard After Dark. Um, you know, just little stuff like that. Um, more behind the scenes stuff, rig walkarounds, current projects, that kind of thing. If you're into that sort of thing. Uh, otherwise, no, I'm just going to keep doing these. Uh, I've been getting a lot of feedback though from everyone that says that they listen and they enjoy them and you know appreciate the info and the tips and tricks and things like that that I give so um, I guess you know people are getting some some value out of it and so that's all I really asked for uh, or really wanted to have in these things is some sort of um, you know learning experience. Uh, I know there's plenty of entertainment podcasts out there uh, that are probably more entertaining than this. So, you know, I try to focus on education and and whatnot, um, you know, because I feel like I am kind of a conduit between two or three different generations and time zones um, because I am, I'm 44, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere, so I had a lot of exposure to old timers and old stuff um, that, that some people didn't have exposure to, um, and so that, that kind of set me up to, I learned a lot of stuff, I saw a lot of stuff, I heard a lot of neat stories from guys that, you know, were old back then and i've been able to carry that through to to now and and you know i try to make it a point to listen to these old guys and listen and retain stuff and and you know these the the lessons that these 
old folks, and not just guys, but I've got some great stories from the old ladies that were married to these old guys, um, you know, that uh, also are, are very good life lesson type stuff. Because one thing I've found is that nothing is new. There's no one in the world has an experience that hasn't been experienced by someone else already. And as much as you like to think that you're an individual snowflake and that everyone is different and no one knows you, someone has been through what you've been through. Um, you know, in one form or another. Maybe not exactly to the letter, but, you know, there's people out there that have already been through this stuff. So hearing their stories and their experiences and, you know, it, it sets you up for success later when maybe you haven't reached that experience yet or you are in the middle of something and, and you're trying to figure out how to get through it. You know, these old folks, they have knowledge that, that uh, you know, we don't have. So, you know, I try and retain all that stuff. I My memory is a weird thing where I forget everyone's name as soon as they introduce themselves and I can't remember, you know, like when someone called 20 minutes ago, but I remember stories, I remember these old folks, I remember things like that. So, I don't know, like I said, I just try to be a, a conduit between, between all these worlds and, you know, relay these stories and relay these experiences and tips and, and whatnot that these old folks have have laid out and you know yeah YouTube is full of the same thing a lot of guys that do it a lot better than I do and a lot uh, more oh I don't know what the word is um, actively um, you know I'm I don't have a barn full of old tractors and I don't have I didn't grow up on that kind of farm I didn't grow up in that kind of environment I mean my dad was too busy working, you know, raising hogs on the side, working at the sawmill and falling timber on the weekends, selling firewood and things like that. My mom was always working. Um, so I didn't get the chance to just like go hang out with old folks all the time when I was a kid, you know. I mean, the, the interactions I had were when we were going to sell hogs or pick up a load of feed or something like that and you would talk to the old farmer with three fingers and find out you know like the dangers of spinning PTO shafts and you know like not uh, not sticking your fingers in a in the lug hole so or wheel sockets you know and things like that like uh, just stuff that's funny you know or hanging out with my grandpa my grandpa lived in in Nevada most of my life and so I only got to see him on summers and spring break spring vacation sometimes and so some of the stories and lessons that I learned from him were were sporadic but uh, you know um, I didn't have that well and the other thing is is that my family's not from America um, my dad moved here from England in 1959 and um, and then same with like my mom's family is all from the Midwest. Um, my grandpa was born in Pendleton, but most of the stuff families like in Kansas and 
you know, they all died. And so I didn't have this big family history to draw from, you know, and, and these sorts of things. Like our family reunions had like six people at them and we haven't had a family reunion in 30 years. Um, all my relatives are dead now. My I got a few aunts and uncles left and whatever. But, um, you know, it just didn't have that kind of big Midwestern family that, that a lot of these guys on YouTube and, and whatnot that have to draw from, um, you know. So I, I enjoy watching what they have because it's still, it's another level above what I can offer. But... Anyway, I just appreciate uh, the guys that comment and you guys that listen and tell me, you know, things that you like and whatnot. And I try to do my best to just fulfill, uh, you know, my role here as an international guy. Um, because, again, I didn't grow up with internationals. I, I didn't even know what a scout was until I was 18. Um, and then my high school science teacher introduced me to all the other stuff the travel-alls and pickups and you know that kind of thing <clears throat> we knew an old logger that had a travelette the crummy you know that had never done any maintenance on it and the brake drums had worn completely through you know but that stuff uh yeah just that was it I, w I wasn't exposed to all this international stuff so it wasn't until the mid 2000s that I discovered the freezers and the refrigerators and you know and then when I bought uh, I bought a pickup in 2010 when I was making my recovery from homelessness that uh, had an international flashlight uh, secured under the steering column and uh, it turns out the old guy that I got this truck from his brother owned the international dealership in Walla Walla Washington and so there was a stack of receipts in the glove box of all the service work this truck had ever had uh, up until the 90s when the dealership closed and then it became this receipts became more sporadic and the shops were varied you know he didn't have a go-to shop anymore that uh, that he used and so but anyways I found this flashlight and there was like the IH fire extinguisher and and so that's when I, you know, the early, like I say, 2009, 2010 is when I really got immersed in the history, the military stuff. And then that's kind of when the dealership seed got planted was, you know, back then. I hadn't started the business yet. I was just a, you know, collector and I was turning trucks over to try and make some money um, because the economy was tough back then. And you know 2010 we were all still coming out of the the great housing crash and um, you know I had pretty much nothing and you know I was working at a hardware store because I'd lost my job at a I used to be a welder fabricator and um, this giant shop in Portland and you know as the layoffs came and they dwindled down and dwindled down I was like in the last 10 welders that got let go and so yeah, it was it was tough. So anyways, I ended up over here in Central Oregon and uh, working at a hardware store and you know kind of making my way back into society. So that's when the the idea of having a dealership 
museum kind of popped up and then I started the business in 2014 and um, you know just exploded from there and uh, I'd be a lot bigger I think if I'd had been able to kind of curate the the workforce a little bit better you know I was always afraid to hire guys because I didn't know how I was going to support them but it's there's never been a shortage of work so I kind of was dumb for not hiring guys or more guys early on um, but anyway that's a that's another podcast for another century um, yeah so anyway I don't know where I'm going with this I just took off on a took off on a tear I guess um, I guess it's all about the IH history and um, you know the fact that they were making refrigerators and freezers in the late 40s um, they had a whole line of refrigeration you know and I believe some of it was there in Indiana and, and some of it was made in Illinois I, I believe I'm not an expert in refrigeration but I believe it started because of the milk houses they were doing big commercial refrigeration for the dairy farms because why not I mean you're gonna have international tractors international trucks and stuff because they were always trying to market stuff together you know like in the 60s they had the diesel c-series pickup they used the same engine as many of the combines and tractors and they're a great combine engine but not a great truck engine but they tried they offered this truck so that a farmer could have the same engine and, and all of his equipment so that meant the same filters the same oil same maintenance program and you know um, it was just a kind of a marketing thing and that's why they did that with the, the refrigeration I believe um, would be you know to try and combine all these products and then yeah the other stuff the the accessories and and whatnot there's always a market for for that kind of thing in the sales world because it happens here I mean people we make stuff and people ask like oh do you make this other thing or can you do this or you know there's always opportunity to sell and and make stuff and I think International saw that through just accessories and expansion you know because it like 100 years 200 years ago they started with the you know the implements and and then morphed into power units and tractors and then you know the early 1900s oh let's make a truck and then oh now people want a lighter truck so let's in the 20s let's start making half tons and you know oh we need some sort of wagon panel you know enclosed hauler so there you start seeing you know the panel trucks in the in the late 20s early 30s and you know they just kinda were always trying to fill a niche niche market and you know so just all kinds of stuff and then of course the war came along and it was you know putting the trucks to work uh, developing developing things that uh, were great for the war but ended up being great for peacetime as well um, you know that those defense contracts were were good money uh, and I think they tried to carry that through into the 50s with the Korean War and the M1 Garand rifle uh, they didn't make a ton of them 
I'm not sure why they just international didn't have the the firearm experience or what to to build rifles on that range that that scale. I don't know. I'm not a I'm not a uh, antique World War II historian, so I'm not sure why they didn't continue on that. But uh, you know, they always had their finger in a military contract after uh, after World War II, and you can see it like in Vietnam. There's a lot of pictures of scouts and lodestars. Uh, you know, all the CBs and stuff doing the construction and building. You see lots of international. Um, cats, crawlers, and tractors and things, um, you know, and then you get into the 80s and you start seeing more of that military industrial complex where they're selling big trucks and now you've got like the AMRAPs and that kind of thing. The, the Navistar Defense is a huge, I bet Navistar Defense makes more money than the rest of the truck division, you know, or did before it got sold to Volkswagen. But Anyway, you know, I I just can't. I don't know. I'm like I said, I'm not a historian on all this stuff. You just have to try and connect the dots of the brand and see, you know, what went where. Uh, and then you could also see the the changing of society. You know, you look at how a how a KB, you know, after the war. Because by like 48, 49, you know, the trucks had all the chrome were back, the drivetrains were were full, um, fully optioned, that kind of thing. And, you know, by 1950, when the L's came out, different motor, like there was already um, post-war, post-war growth. But just from the difference in the models from 1950 to 1960... I mean, they're just 10 years of improvement is crazy how much they change. And then again, from 1960 to 1970, you know, you get in a 1960 three-quarter ton four-wheel drive and it's got that weird gauge pod and no power steering, manual brakes, low gears, uh, you know, just a bunch of stuff that's it's super outdated and then 10 years later you're in a 1970 four-wheel drive and you've got big brakes and power steering power brakes and you know air conditioning and all that stuff so it's just it's crazy how fast the brand was changing to keep up with societal demands and popular opinion and but yet still trying to be that you know, do all fill every niche brand by offering five speed transmissions and, you know, having the dealerships do engine conversions, you know, because you could get not from the factory, which I, I hate when people say that, but you could have. I've seen several instances now where uh, C and D series trucks were sent to upfitters to have Perkins diesel engines added. Um, there's even a couple out there that have Detroit three-cylinder Detroit diesels in them and they have the paperwork to prove that they went from you know from a dealership with zero miles to an upfitter to have the conversions done and then sold on the floor as you know whatever factory and so 
you know they were they were trying to hit all of these markets and and fulfill all these needs which I think might have hurt them a little bit just because that stuff is so costly when you're doing individual onesie twosie type builds but you know at the same time I can see why there there's money on the table if they were willing to do it and so that's why you get these oddball builds out there where you just like I've got a 1010 here which is the two-wheel drive half ton IFS front-end truck with a five-speed which is I don't know I'm probably the only one ever made um, it, it's hard to say but and then again you know it could have been done after the fact it's like I said it's hard to say but the fact that the truck were so modular that you could do that like you could change stuff out and and make it work like the whole divorce transfer case thing is such a great um, a great thing for assembly line and model development like like oh you want a four-wheel drive we'll just hang a cross member and hang a transfer case so it's like oh you don't want four-wheel drive well then we just put a, a cross member and a carrier bearing in here and now you you know like it's so easy to change them back and forth um, even the scouts you know the scout front axle on a two-wheel drive still uses scout four-wheel drive knuckles and brakes and wheel hubs and all that so if you had a if you found a four-wheel drive center section all you would need to do is put in axle shafts and locking hubs and you can put all that two-wheel drive stuff on it and now you you know four-wheel drive and then you have to change the transmission on a scout you'd have to change the trans to the four-wheel drive transmission but cross members are all there all the mounts are there like it's a super easy changeover to to go between the two um you know the frames in the d series c series they were they were just trying to make themselves as as interchangeable as possible to fill every potential market I think and you, you know it goes back into the 50s with the you know the first four-wheel drive trucks being coming from the factory you know 53 54 and down into the one and a half ton the 140 series you know marketing to all these utility companies and oil exploration companies because the nation was growing so fast and expanding so fast we were you know we learned so much from the war and what we needed and so just was international was making all of these things to to try and fill these these holes and it worked I mean yeah Dodge had the power wagon and Dodge was trying to outfit stuff but I don't know if I mean from my experience it just looks like international kinda had a little bit more more going for it uh, a little more fit and finish um, you know, Dodge didn't make tractors and Dodge didn't make the, you know, a lot of that other stuff. And so I don't think they were as, as hip to what the market needed. Um, so, so yeah, it just, uh, international was just trying to get on, you know, make money wherever they could. And the fifties were such a boom, you know, and then when they hit jackpot with the scout in 61, like that really showed the world that international was really hitting these markets and and 
getting stuff out there that people wanted and people could use because if it wasn't a good idea it wouldn't have been copied but you had you know the Bronco in 66 the Wagoneer that kind of thing yeah I mean you had the Willys wagon that was before the Scout but Willys wagons were man um, I've had buddies with a couple of them and they are tough to use um, they were pretty weak pretty underpowered undersized you know they just didn't have the the I don't know I mean low horsepower meant they wouldn't break a lot of stuff but they're tough to use um, but at the time up until 1961 it was the only option you had for a four-wheel drive kind of utility vehicle if you're you know in America uh, I don't want to get into the whole Land Cruiser and Land Rover thing but you know the Willys wagon was just was it and I think International saw the the hole in the market and that's where the Scout came out and being convertible and all those other options and you know by by 65 they had really nailed down the the design and you know worked out the bugs and got her simplified and and that's why my my favorite 80s are are the 65 64 and fives um, you know and then the 800 they had to change to keep up with the Bronco that came out and 67 you know they were V8 um, and then you know from then it was it was a race to see who could keep up with all the innovation and societal changes you know that's why they had already started designing the Scout 2 in 68 69 and it wasn't going to come out until 72 so you know they knew that the Scout platform was short lived and it just goes back to like I was saying between the 50 to 60 you know 60 to 70 and then you look at the Scout so from 61 to 71 of course it needed a change and they were already working on it um, and that's why it's such a big departure between the two models like this the early Scout and the Scout 2 are such drastic night and day differences across the board uh, and so you know it's just it's just one of those things the international was just they were trying to fill all these markets and keep everybody happy and and keep up with society and and whatnot but at the same time just try to make everyone happy and, and you can see that in the 800s like they really it was just afterthought after afterthought just scabbing things on there it's like oh we put a v8 in it now we got to add 10 more leaf springs to support the weight you know like just stuff like that to just try and keep up um because they knew the Scout 2 was on its way and they didn't want to do a big redesign of an 8800 uh, so yeah but anyway yeah it just it's international just one of those things that you know the history of them if you read the books and you look through what they did uh, you know it's it's crazy to think that they went out of business um, but also easy to see how they went out of business by doing all the specialty stuff and letting the dealers just run wild and you know their sales models were terrible um, you know it made sense on paper it made sense to have a dealership in every town but it didn't make sense to have them sell two trucks and a scout you know and 
three or four tractors. Like, it just, I don't know. They, they had a hell of a time marketing, whereas, you know, the big big three were in the big cities and were, were marketing to the masses. And International just had a hard time with that, I think. Um, but, I don't know. The, the museum that I want to build someday and the dealership, replica dealership, I think is going to be a, a good homage to the brand. You know, it'll be the 50s. Uh, prototype dealership with the spire and the big IH and the you know the stainless letters and all that 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 to me that's international's golden era in my opinion is the 50s to 60 early 60s range it wasn't till the late 60s that they started to suffer you know management problems and employee and unions and that kind of thing but <clears throat> but anyway um yeah, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going. This has just been a rambling, winding, who knows what. I undercoated a scout yesterday, and I think I'm still high from the fumes. But uh, anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, <laughs> hopefully you enjoyed my TED Talk. And uh, if I said anything that was interesting, great. If you didn't like it, I don't blame you for fast-forwarding. Uh, speaking of losing patreon donators but anyway i uh, appreciate you guys uh, we are headed to indiana uh, for um homecoming first of august we'll be gone for two weeks so if you're kind of going to be in indiana come out to homecoming and see us um appreciate it very much i appreciate you guys uh until next time i'm dan from binder boneyard